Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina offers a daily update of all the news you need to know about China in an email newsletter, mobile phone app, and on SubChina.com. We're coming to you this week from two places, an apartment in Manhattan's Midtown East, and from a studio in Beijing, where we're joined by Seneca regular co-hosts, David Moser and Ada Shan. Welcome, Ada and David. Hey, guys. How are you guys doing there? And where are you? New York? We're in New York. That's where Manhattan is. Oh, yeah, you, thanks. You might recall. <laughs> All right, let's redo that. <laughs> How <are> you do? <laughs> uh, have you buried David or is he there? Yes, I'm here. We're here in Beijing <laughs> where Xi Jinping is. Right. <laughs> where the skies are blue okay, and we're paranoid. Uh, yeah. It's just a big piece of agitprop. Right. That's why you have to think a little bit before you talk. Okay, I got it. All <laughs> right. Now, I haven't mentioned him yet. Uh, but here in New York, we also have Kaiser Gore. And I've delayed uh, mentioning him so far because today he is not actually uh, a host. He is a guest because we are doing the Kaiser Gore exit interview after mocking me for a year because I moved to Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> there he is. <laughs> Kaiser recently departed our beloved Beijing with his family to settle not too far away from me in the American South, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, to be precise. Today, we are going to talk to the metal-loving, history-reading, sword-collecting, long-haired, uh, what was I going to say? I nearly said internet guru. Oh, oh damn. <laughs> Whatever. That's Welcome, the one thing Kaiser. I didn't want you to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I couldn't help it. So, Kaiser, just before I left Beijing, you asked me to do an exit interview podcast. To my kind. eternal regret. Yes. Right. Uh, so we'd done these exit interviews with a number of journalists and media people who'd lived in Beijing for a long time just before their final departure. And I initially refused your request, but somehow you conned me into coming into the studio one day to record one. And I managed to sabotage it by drinking half a bottle of whiskey yes, during the did. recording and saying such unspeakable things during that recording that the whole show ended up being unusable. What you said, I will never repeat and will go with me and with Bill. Bill Bishop was in, in on that one, too. Right? He actually supplied the whiskey, didn't he? He was the one who, yes, yeah, supplied right, whiskey. Right. And, uh, yeah, fortunately, we deep-sixed that one, and it will never... I hope never, he deleted the recording. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, um, I, I just didn't want to do that show, and I think part of the reason was that, unlike you, I hadn't actually left my job at the time. I was still managing a team in Beijing. And also, unlike you, uh, I wasn't actually going home. I was moving to America as a first-time Im immigrant who'd never spent more than about three months uh, in this country. And I think I feared that maybe after a year in Trump land, I would run terrified with my tail between my legs back to the embrace of Mother China, the only country that I had ever really <laughs> lived in as an adult before moving to the U.S. last year. You um, just became an adult last year, though, so that's, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, some would uh, question that, too. Um, you, on the other hand, made a big deal about leaving. or at least, I didn't make a big okay, deal. Okay, other people it. made a big deal, and you were a willing participant. Your band had a farewell concert. Yes, this you, is true. You were active on social media discussing your, your departure and even on this podcast. Uh, and you accepted interviews from a number of media organizations interested in why you were leaving. And they were, they were very insistent. Right. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, all of this is from a guy who I remember when I first told you I was going to move to Tennessee. You basically told me I was crazy and that you were still a Beijing life. Well, actually, that was just a ploy to get you to remain, at least until I was ready to go, because I still needed you there. <laughs> That's <laughs> <see>. true. <laughs> okay, so now it comes out. Anyway, let's get this out of the way first so we don't have to talk about it anymore. 
Give our listeners a bullet point explanation of why you left Beijing. I want your why I'm leaving China letter condensed to bullet point form. Oh, it's just one bullet point. I did it just for the kids. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that if I uh, were single or if I were just married and didn't have children, I wouldn't have left. I had a very, very fulfilling, interesting life there. Um, there's no real reason for me to leave. I, I left. David, do you remember when we did that Daddy Issues podcast some time ago? Yeah, absolutely. I was going to mention that, right? Yeah, we, mm-hmm. we, we talked about you know the, the benefits of, of elementary school education in China. I, I still kind of believe that my kids having gone to grade school there was a good thing. They learned Chinese for, for one thing, which is <laughs> not an easy thing to do. Basic arithmetic, right. useful yeah. for <laughs> Chinese They'll not kids. have to open a math book for two years now. <laughs> it's great. Uh, no, so it's, it's really all about that and about my, you know, this crazy idea I have to create these completely bicultural children. Uh, I mean, the, the truth of it is, is my wife basically looks at me and says, well, look, you're not particularly smart or hardworking and you've gotten where you are. <laughs> Only because you're bi- bicultural or you're sort of bicultural. And if we can't at least give our kids that advantage, then, you know, we failed them as parents. So, yeah, no, for some time, yeah, we we actually for, for maybe five years, you know, we had planned on 2016 as the year we would move to the States, at least until, you know, we have the kids safely off to college. Kaiser, can, can I ask just a quick question? This is just in, on, on the issue of bicultural. I think and, and during that Daddy podcast, we noted that it's probably a little bit easier to actually raise truly bicultural kids, at least from, for Americans, here in, in China rather than in America. Uh, do you think your kids are old enough now that, they've, that the Chinese has, has sort of infected them completely, that they'll never lose it? Or, or, or what is your thinking? Yeah, I think the, the Chinese has sunk in really, really well to the point that they're actually you know, kind of resistant to speaking English right now, or at least my daughter is. She's she's got this whole thing about only wanting to speak to me in Chinese now. When the rule has always been that she was supposed to speak to me in English, but you know, I, th- I think it's it's sunk in pretty well. Um, my my daughter's quite a decent writer in Chinese. My son's got you know a few thousand good characters under his belt. It's it's not gonna. I mean, I think that's that's sunk in. I, I guess I want to get something else out of the way here. Like, there are a lot of people who assume that my leaving might have had something to do with the worsening political situation in China. Uh, I just want to say that it it didn't. That first of all, I, I don't have my eyes closed. I, I recognize that the political situation in China, at least from the point of view of an American uh, or you know another Westerner, I, I would remind people that I lived in China uh, when it was a hell of a lot more authoritarian than it is now. I mean, and it, it's not like people live in China because they want to enjoy uh, political freedoms, and they <laughs> that's not why they go there. That's not why they live there. And so you know, it, it wasn't about that. It had absolutely nothing to do with that, uh, although I completely recognize that that uh, things have tightened down appreciably and possibly for you know a long time. So, okay, well, that explains the China piece, but, you know, America is a great big place, and you're from Arizona, so why did you relocate to Chapel Hill, North Carolina? My answer to that is pretty simple. I mean, we wanted to go somewhere where there was a, a pretty vibrant intellectual community that meant, you know, a university cluster, lots of places like that. So originally, I'd, I'd planned to go uh, to the Bay Area with Baidu. Baidu was going to send me there. Uh, they did, in the end, offer to relocate me. But when the the you know the partnership uh, with SupChina came along, and I had this chance to take this thing that Jeremy and I had been doing for six years as just a, a hobby. And turn it into something I could, you know, earn a living doing. Uh, I couldn't not do that. And then I suddenly realized that I could live anywhere in the states that I wanted to. I figured, you know, the Bay Area. I mean, if I wanted like congestion, really good Chinese food, <laughs> and and really overpriced housing, I would have stayed in fucking. Yeah. <laughs> <I> mean, <right? laughs> yeah. So I, I I didn't want. I wanted to go somewhere with a, a good a university cluster, uh, you know, a vibrant intellectual community and. <laughs> Uh, affordable housing, but you know the first consideration was really good public schools. I mean, to send the kids to, and Chapel Hill has just tremendously good public schools. Mm. So that was that was really it. And then you know there were other cities in the country that that met those criteria, but most of them were north of the Mason Dixon line, and it snowed a lot. And I don't really <laughs> feel like dying of cardiac arrest shoveling snow in my driveway. That's the the. I so said we we decided <laughs> the south, and kind of far up north in the south. And near Jeremy, too, right? I mean, we're just like, what, seven hours away on I-40? Yeah, yeah, which is nothing in the United States. (laughs) It's a big country. Seven hours away on I-40. You need to start talking like this, you guys. We'll see.
Yeah. Asheville, David, that was is, terrible. Is a lovely place. It's right between us. Oh, I mean, we just call it the forty. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have to say, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how your perspectives evolve now that you're located in a very different, you know, sort of counter programming, if you will. You know, you guys didn't go to the established liberal hubs on the coasts. And I think that's I think that's actually really interesting. I mean, it sounds really snobbish yeah. of me as a liberal no. coastal person, doesn't it? But that's a bi-coastal that's my take elite. On it. Yeah, huh? That's OK. Hey, man, I see a lot of. Priuses with Bernie stickers on them where I live. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's you're a hub. Pre I, <laughs> you're in an on pre I stickers. <laughs> and once Donald Trump becomes president, well, there will be no liberal hubs anywhere. Uh, they'll, they'll all be uh, diaspora liberal hubs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's. Let, That's yeah, not going to happen. We'll do our best to make sure that doesn't happen. It's a long <laughs> way to election day still. Uh, so Kaiser, this is this is like a. You know, you're still very much involved with China. Obviously, you're going to be continuing to cover it, but this just sort of is an end of a chapter in in a sense. So you're probably going to be asked this question a lot, which is, you know, what is what are the changes that you saw in China since you came in the 80s and, and, and when you left? Maybe if you could sum up a little bit what you think are the most interesting uh, consequential changes, um, you know, for China itself or in your life. I mean, I mean, what hasn't changed? I mean, every, it's been so remarked on. Is that anything that I say here would be like entirely banal and repetitive? But I guess one thing that I've been thinking about quite a bit is just how, when I arrived in 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 China in the late '80s as a a, a, a virile young man, uh, just how sexually uptight <laughs> the place was. Just how incredibly repressed it was. Just how hard it was. Just you couldn't to, get laid. You mean? Well. Not, I mean, not, not easily. <laughs> it took way more work. I no, uh, seriously, it, 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 it just. I, th- I don't think that people have talked all that much about this. The, the thoroughgoing sexual revolution. I mean, this. Mm. What, what dating was like, David? You remember what it was like? I mean, Ada, you even must remember how how different it was. Just even in the nineties uh, to now, just, just, just sexual mores were so just. Uh, tightly wound and horrible. Um, and yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, uh, there were a lot of things happening. I mean, you know, the, it was still a fast growing country. So obviously people were having sex. Uh, but, you know, it was just, it was still just surreptitious. People would, you know, meet in parks and hold hands over these, you know, make out spots in the public parks and stuff. It was completely different here. And now, I mean, I live on, or I lived until very recently on Gongti, right by all those clubs. And just the, the oozing sexuality of, of that street, just that, you know, pulsing kind of vibe there. You know, David, you know, when we'd record, you'd walk down that street every every time we'd, we'd head over to the pop-up studio no, to record. No, don't get, you, don't you, drag you know. me into this. <laughs> I am going to drag you into this. But it's it's just, I mean, that, that speaks volumes about, you know, how much China has changed. That, right? That's very true. I mean, um, my first year in China, I... Uh, they weren't, it was very difficult to get foreign language books. In, this was 1995. Uh, so you could get a, a lot of like uh, Penguin classics. Um, and yeah, even though I, had, I was supposed to uh, have read the entire oeuvre of, uh, uh, of um, the Bronte sisters and Jane Austen at university, I, I, I'd kind of not done that. <laughs> but I did in my first year in China. And I actually understood it because suddenly I was... In this it, Victorian repressed this, society, yeah, where you know uh, you couldn't really have sex for fun, and you only got married for sort of material purposes. Well, you still only get married for material purposes. But. That's true, but you can have sex for fun. Right. <laughs> this is true. Oh, so I don't know why I went off on sex as like yeah, why that I was kind of that. a pervy way. <laughs> but, 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 but talk true. about some other changes. Um, like uh, what else? would you say is remarkable and not the usual things okay they're more buildings it's blah, no blah, no blah, yeah that's know, also whatever, you know. i'd say obviously it's it's uh, the hardware side it's the software i mean it's I, I i saw the light in people's eyes change i mean from my first trip to china in 1981 i mean which i still distinctly remember i mean i was 15 but i do remember very very well that this the 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 light in people's eyes was different mm. there was something that was not yet switched on mm. and uh People just sort of came alive by the end of the 80s. It was uh, there was this in, in, incredible interest and thirst for, for everything. There was more cognitive activity happening there. Uh, that it was it was a software change that was monumental. It was it was absolutely earth shattering, and it was really that 
that made me believe uh, that this was going to be the most interesting story happening in 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 my lifetime, and that I needed to to be there to have a front row seat to see it happen, to see it unfold. So, Kaiser, like kind of a part of that, um, uh, and Ada, um, Ada and I first met in I guess ninety seven. Uh, we were ninety eight, I think. Right? No, ninety eight. Ada and I met. It was ninety eight. Ninety eight was. Yeah. Okay. Summer sorry. of ninety eight. So Ada and I were working together on Beijing Scene, which was the first independent English language entertainment magazine in China. Um, and soon afterwards, Kaiser, you became editorial director at China Now, which was an online publication that was in many ways competition to Beijing Scene. And there was even a certain amount of rivalry and, you know... Uh, I didn't feel it. Oh, you didn't? I, I forgot. <laughs> did we... Did with that um, thing? <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, Tell us about China now, uh, and what did that teach you about being a sl- uh, slacker? Uh, slacker? Uh, no, I mean a journalist, an <laughs> <laughs> uh, internet guru. <laughs> well, you know, what did you learn from China now? What was that experience about? It says China now. Uh, it was actually the brainchild of of really three people. Uh, it was Marcus Broccoli, who at the time was the the Wall Street Journal's bureau chief based in Shanghai. There was um, a guy named Tony Zhang, who was sort of a uh, he was one of the the operators of Park Ninety Seven, this club in uh, this restaurant and nightlife spot in Shanghai, right at at, at uh, Fuxing Park. Mm-hmm. And Graham Earnshaw, who's been a guest on the show uh, at least once, you know, who's uh, a mover and shaker down in Shanghai and has his fingers in many a pot. It was intended to be a portal. It was a bilingual portal, the Chinese and English side, and I was in charge of you know editorial for the English side of it. It was sort of salon meets city search. Uh, so there was there's quite a bit of what nowadays would be called long-form writing. And we commissioned quite a bit of very good writing from, from folks like, well, like Rob Schmitz, who was a guest on the show not very long ago, and Peter Hessler, who, my God, I mean, it goes on. There's a, a, there was a, a Craig Simons, who's written a book on the environment in China. Uh, quite a few people who've gone on to pretty prestigious journalistic careers. And it was, it was incredibly fun. We had everything on there from serial fiction, which I, I wrote, and well, Jerry Chan and and I uh, wrote, and you know listings. You know buddies like Mauro. Remember, you know Mauro Marashali, He was part of it. There's the whole China Now crew has. Ciao Mauro. Yeah, ciao Mauro. Uh, lots and lots of, of of people who you know long time uh, foreigners living in China would would know. Yeah, so like Beijing scene, it was sort of a. a a, a crucible for a lot of, of, of China watching talent that you know later on went on to more reputable writing. <laughs> so yeah, it was great. I mean, I still think back really, really fondly to the the Counter Strike sessions that we had after work with you know the first like networked <laughs> computers. It was like, hey, this is like an internet cafe. So we all stuck around late after work and just you know shot each other up with machine guns. It was great. You'll fit in really well in North Carolina. I will. I will. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I already am. <laughs> Kaiser, yeah, so that was trying to Kaiser, do you feel like that uh, you're you're speaking so nostalgically about that era, and I can sort of identify with that? Do you, do you feel that in some sense that that some of the more interesting things in terms of of, of the sort of radical change and 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 you know amazing surrealistic sorts of developments have already have already happened? That that era is over, and and now you know you're moving on, partly because it you know now it's sort of like um, Dealing with the new normal and and t- tweaking around the edges rather than any any sort of radical change. Do you feel that? I think that two things. I I I do think that it was a remarkable time, and I'm very very lucky to have been there to, to see it happen. But anyone who's been in China in, at any time, any slice of, of of time, has been just remarkable. And I think that there's so many of these younger China watchers these days that that I run into who have better language skills than our cohort, the oldsters like us have, who are not haunted by certain, you know, specters that, you know, who don't connect absolutely everything to, to 1989, who mm. really kind of are used to thinking of China as more of a peer than we are, who are maybe less U.S. or Eurocentric in their thinking. And I, I find a lot of their perspectives really refreshing and I, I think one of the things that I, I hope that I've done a bit of is connecting with some of these these people and uh, really kind of taking the time to hang out with them and meet them and, and encourage them and maybe, you know, 
to the extent possible, share some of, of, of what I've learned along the way with them. But they're great. I mean, they're just amazing. There's 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 tons of them too. There's just so many of them. And in 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 many ways, I, I wish some of us would just get out of the way <laughs> and let them shine because they're great. Well, that will happen uh, naturally. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we'll yeah. die. Well, yes, I'll, we'll I'm, die. Yeah, uh, we'll just now. die. And some people can hardly wait, probably. But <laughs> let's let's go back to the Tang Dynasty, shall we? Uh, and by that I mean the rock group. The, the the you were one of the founders of the Tang Dynasty, and uh, Jeremy mentioned your or you, we were talking about your your uh, final uh, performance with your your band Chunqiu. Maybe that's something that we that uh, you've talked about it several times. We've we've talked about it on the podcast in the past, but but maybe you have some new thoughts or, or realizations having come to this part, this end of your chapter. Yeah, I mean, metal and, and, and the rock scene there is a really important part of my life for many years in China. No matter what I've done with this podcast or whatever, uh, whatever I've left, I think probably this is going to be the thing that I'm kind of remembered for. And that's fine. Uh, I, I think that we should be very, very clear on one thing is that I landed on a low-gravity planet with really just stubbornly middling skills on my instrument, and I didn't get much better along the way. Let's let's make no mistake. I mean, with my chops such as they are, it's not like I would have been able to play in a big famous band in any you know major developed country, right? So I got real lucky, and I'm 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 very grateful for having had that opportunity. But you know, I'm not speaking here as some guy who's particularly technically proficient musician. But I I think that I'm really really glad that I I had the chance to imprint a bit on on the scene here uh, to push people, some of the young musicians that I I got to know to woodshed a little more on their instruments to actually gain technical proficiency and that's part of the reason why I kind of pushed metal as a genre that I thought would be appropriate for people kind of in that stage because it's it's one that is really kind of technically demanding it teaches you you know all, lots of rudiments and I thought a lot about why metal might be an appropriate genre of music for the China of the late 1980s and the 1990s when I was there really active in music and I, I think that there's a couple of things. I mean, first, metal really is is this incredibly unironic genre. I mean, it it, it Spinal Tap accepted it. it really just <laughs> I was like uh, at laughing at itself. Really? Okay. I yeah. mean, it it it's not an it's 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 really earnest. It's, yes. it's super earnest. Yeah, right. It's true. And I mean, if you think about like, like you, sir. Yeah, where where no, if you think about like where it is flourished globally. It's like sort of this belt of earnestness that, that is like above the 38th parallel. And, it, you know, that's it, why, you know, there's so many metal bands in Finland and in Norway and Sweden. And, uh, you know, well, I think it's, I do think funny. Uh, the Germany, Chinese are, do strike me as being very earnest in a way that I think yes. it's difficult for Americans to be earnest without irony or being sarcastic. And, and Chinese people are really able to just be earnest about whatever endeavor right. it is. They're undertaking. So I think that's actually really interesting. Ex- exactly. Um, genre fit, if you will. That, that is kind of funny, Ed. I have to say, as somebody of like the uh, sort of English Commonwealth kind of co- colonies extraction. Diaspora. We tend to think yeah. of America's, uh, Americans as being very earnest, I have to say. Well, but I mean, there's plenty of metal in the American Midwest where there is, you know, in the American belt of earnestness, right? Right, okay. okay. It's not a, a genre that's particularly popular in, in New York. Exactly. Right, okay. Right. So, gotcha. but, but um, what I like, there, there are other ways that it mapped really well, I think, onto China, and and those are, you know, I, I talked about the kind of technical proficiency thing that maps almost perfectly to to kung fu, to kung fu, to martial arts, you know, where you have this sort of almost a kind of quantitative assessment of somebody's proficiency, right? And I mean, kids kind of got that. Mm. Not only that, but it mapped onto, I mean, like you know, Western heavy metal, it has as its kind of cultural touchstones medievalism and you know barbarism uh, you know the kind of long-haired warrior kind of dude um savagery is is a big part of it and and there was lots of that to to i mean you know, so if you look at the metal bands and all their tolkien derived names and and all that you know viking shit and the dungeons and dragons stuff i mean there's there's tons of it in metal and in china there was a good reference for that too in the wuxia kind of the, the martial right. arts yeah, aspects, right. the novels I mean, right yeah Badass. And it, it worked really, really well. It's the whole idea behind the name, you know, and Tang Dynasty. And it's still hugely popular. I mean, it's just, you know, hard rock, yeah. 
uh, metal is still a hugely right. popular genre here. Of course, back then it was like the core definition of spiritual pollution too. <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to give the number one yeah. example of spiritual pollution, that would be it. Well, that so, was a feature, not a bug. That's what I'm saying. That's, <laughs> that's, that also made yeah. it very attractive. Yes, right? absolutely. Well, to a certain subset, I'm sure. But at the same time, you needed to come up with a way that it was going to be sort of acceptable. And I think that Tong Dynasty as a name, as a sort of an idea for the band, worked really well in that context because, you know, the Tong is something that people all sort of recognize as one of the periods of greatness in China's history. And it was great precisely because it was cosmopolitan, because it embraced foreign ideas. And that was the, idea, that was the cipher that was built into the name of the band, is that it was sub- subliminally supposed to suggest a kind of uh, a greatness based on an ability to absorb and make Chinese things that were inherently not Chinese. Mm. So you considered the name Opium Wars, but you discarded that because <laughs> Tang Dynasty was much better, right? Well, let me... Uh, well, with Tang Dynasty. Let me ask you this. So, I mean, I think it's sort of interesting to consider how maybe things have changed since you first arrived oh, so long ago. And, you know, would you... You know, what is in, that in the music dynamic? Scene, yeah. yeah, I mean, you found an entree because you were a foreigner who spoke some Chinese and you were excited and willing and you had something to share. I think many foreigners in China still feel that way. But how how has that changed? You know, has it fundamentally no, no, changed? That's, or that's has great, it, great I mean, how, what what would you do today if you were to land today, for example? Yes. Yeah. I think the bar's higher. I think the gravity has has very much increased here. Uh, it isn't so easy. I mean, it, it's mm. not in our day, Ada and, and David, you know, like David's an exception because David is actually a great musician. But you look at the different scenes. He's right? making faces uh, very modestly. <laughs> No, no, but but look, Ada, like back in the, and Jeremy too, like back in in the the late eighties, the early nineties, or whatever, or even into the late nineties, it was quite possible to be somebody on a in, in one of the. So what were the scenes? There was like you know, kind of the the, the rave club DJ ish scene, right? There was like the the film scene. Oh yeah, right? for sure. Ada, you you definitely were you know kind of you know very very involved in that. There was the the art scene, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there still is, you know, the art scene. And and back then there were quite a number of foreigners involved in each of these different scenes. Or multiply. I mean, it, I was it's, involved in I think what, all of what, the above, but yeah, you, know. right, you were. <laughs> no, but it but it was that kind of place where you could do kind of anything and almost everything. I mean, do you remember when business cards would li- routinely list like 10 different right. <laughs> services? Right. And, sure. You know, sure. And, yeah. and I don't, I mean, it was, yeah, paradise for the dilettantes the back same? then. Right. Is it still that energy of possibility everywhere? No, or, yeah. no. And I think that's, that's a yeah. sign of, that's a, that's, that's a very, very a positive sign of maturation. I think that the fact that, you know, some kind of lame slacker, can't come and do what I did. Right, barrier is good. It means higher. it means things have evolved. Yeah, I mean, because yeah, yeah. I, I mean, shit, I, I wouldn't want this guy. I mean, me with my you know kind of half half assed <laughs> skills okay. to be able to do so, that. I mean, again, to our dear listeners, <laughs> don't try this at home. <laughs> no, no, do though, do. But I mean, only if you're really. I mean, if you're if you've got if you've got the skills, bring it and and yes. and, and show it. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm glad it's it's weeding out much much better than it was at one point yeah. Kaiser I used you to can't just make it as uh, yeah. I, used, I used to say people would ask me why I like China I said China is my drug of choice <laughs> Do you, are you having with, are you having <laughs> yeah, any withdrawal see. symptoms he's um, been there like a week I know I'm just wondering oh know, okay yeah. I mean heroin <laughs> a week <laughs> is a, a long time if you're going cold turkey Ada <laughs> it is no, of course I mean I, my wife and I were just talking about this, this morning just how pretty much every dream that we can remember since we've been here, still takes place in Beijing. Oh, yeah, uh, everything is course. still very much sort of situated in Beijing. I, I still think of it as home right now. And you still and, say here, even though we're right. we're there. Right, we're there. <laughs> and 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 I I am having a, a a great deal of difficulty not believing that I'm just on a kind of longish holiday and that at some point I'm gonna go <laughs> you know back and live real life in Beijing again. That's what I think. You know, I've, I've been a very I mean, good I'm little American same. consumer. I still think Jeremy is just, you know, yeah, you just know, a long one, holiday. One yeah. beer away, you know, like I just. Yeah, he's in rehab. He'll be back soon. <laughs> he will be, though. He does. All right, let's talk about cars. Let's talk about something. Cars, you know, okay. Sure. That so changed. In the 1990s, as I recall, and maybe Ada, you do too, Kaiser had a car. Sure. Uh, you actually had a car at a time when very few people did. 
two decades later, you know, your last few years in Beijing, you were reduced to an electric bicycle. Um, this is emblematic. Let's talk about <laughs> driving in Beijing. I mean, in the 1990s, you were like the guy with the car, uh, and all your Chinese friends had bicycles or the bus. And then two decades later, all your Chinese friends had Lamborghinis or at the very least Audis. None of my friends. But okay, they had... No, they've got like very reasonable... Yeah, they've got okay. exactly... But you were on an electric bike. Um, well, you know, there well, it is. Anyway, right, right. But uh, forget about your loss of status. Let's talk about what it was like... <laughs> this feels like a dig. What it was like to drive in Beijing in the 1990s. Wow, yeah. So driving in Beijing in the 90s was sort of like driving in, in, in where I live now. I mean, there, was, there weren't all that many cars on the road. It was just not so goddamn congested. You could actually like pull up that I'm going to go see a play at this theater and I'm going to go park on the mm, stairs. I mean, right. uh, that's, you just park wherever you wanted. Nobody cared. Right. It was just, yeah, pretty crazy. I had a, a red Jeep Cherokee and that was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was relatively inexpensive. We bought it used for 70,000 yuan, I remember. Nice. 70,000 yeah, yuan. Yeah, nice. Yeah, Score. Wow. It was like all my earnings from a, a big show that we did once. I just like plopped it into a car. Yes, it was it was fun back then, but you know, it, by by two thousand two, two thousand three, owning a car was something that I just never wanted. After, I mean, it was just no fun. It would have been no fun to drive again in Beijing. And you know, when electric scooters came along, I felt this incredible sense of liberation. I miss my scooter. If, you know, you were asking me, Ada, earlier, um, do I miss anything? You know, am I having withdrawals about anything? Yeah, I miss my scooter, man. <laughs> that thing is great. <laughs> I, I love just being able to. I mean, those for those little trips of like you know a mile, two miles to the grocery store or whatever, where I just need, you know need to go pick something up. I, I hate the fact that I have to get into a car now and drive the car and park the car and whatever. I mean, I would much rather have the scooter. Well, buy a scooter. Yeah, you can. Well, no, I mean, I, I might buy, buy like a, a gas scooter, but you know, it's pretty hilly where I live in Chapel Hill. Electric scooters don't take hills so well. Did you buy a car already? For North Carolina, I bought two cars. <laughs> I bought two cars. I did. Oh I, I, I honestly like. I, I, we arrived on Friday, and Monday by noon, I was the proud owner of a Honda Pilot nice. EX. Oh, cool! L and a Honda Accord, all, both brands. All new. right, wow. well done, well done. And a riding lawnmower. <laughs> yeah. This episode of Cynica brought to you by Honda Motors. Wow! Yeah, you are becoming an American again. Yep, I got cable. Yeah, <laughs> cable, two hundred and sixteen channels and three hundred meg internet. I I, mean, I three hundred mbps internet. Can you believe that? I don't recognize you guys yes, anymore. I... <laughs> There's some gulfs that cannot be crossed. I mean, it's kind of nice that everything works on the internet now. I I used to be one of those guys like, yeah, hey, so it's not such a big inconvenience, so I have to turn my VPN on once in a while. No, it's it's completely different. <laughs> it's completely different. I mean, just having like everything work on your phone all the time, it's just completely different. Try it. You, you'll, you'll like it. That should be my recommendation, just an <laughs> uncensored internet. <laughs> Try it. You'll like it. <laughs> yeah. So um, how are your kids adapting? I mean, I can just only imagine. But I mean, they're, they're, for them, this is a, 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 much, a, a much bigger deal because you're just returning to something you're more or less familiar with. They're, they're, they've been to the U.S. many times, obviously, but... They're now in plugged in, to so to speak. What's what's their reaction? It's strange. Um, my daughter is in denial about it still, and she's sort of embracing her Chinese identity, kind of even more firmly. Mm-hmm. You know, like wanting to eat Chinese food all the time. Uh, my son is is just like completely turning American. I mean, before my very eyes. Wow. And he's only speaking English with me pretty much all the wow. time, and he's um, like reveling in in the abundance of hamburgers. <laughs> He just loves, you know, he loves hamburgers. He's got this, like, you know, this this constantly updated ranking uh, that he's always going, what has displaced In-N-Out or Five Guys recently, you know. But I have to say, you know, one of his, so persistent on his ranking of hamburgers are Home Plate and a Great Leap in Beijing. Oh, so those oh. have not been knocked out of his top five yet by American Shanghai uh, huh. hamburgers. But uh, they don't have In-N-Out. As a Californian, they don't have In-N-Out Burger in North right, Carolina, right. so... <laughs> They, I mean, they don't, know, they don't. Got to take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. So how would you imagine then, let's play alternate history, Kaiser, if, if you hadn't uh-huh. moved to China oh so long ago, I mean, how would your life 
be different. You know, if you were a parallel Kaiser who had in, instead returned to the U.S. in 1989 um, and had never come back to China, what do you think, who would you be today? What, what do you think that would be like? It's not so hard to to imagine the path not taken. I mean, because I, I was at such a fork in, in 95. At the end of 95, I uh, was still in graduate school and had decided basically that I was going to, you know, finish my PhD and then just pursue a career in academia. That was going to be it. It's entirely likely that it would have gone that way. Uh, what happened was in May of, of, of 96, of, uh, in May of 95, Zhang Zhu, our, our bass player, was killed in a, a motorcycle accident. And the band really fell on very, very hard times. And I was convinced to come back to China to rejoin Tang Dynasty. That was the reason. I quit grad school to join the band. I mean, it was a very convenient way to be able to tell people uh, that I was quitting grad school without him having judge me, right? which was kind of nice. Everyone could understand, oh, so you're going back to play in this famous rock band. Well, I, I get that. So yeah, that would have been the other path. I mean, I, I think I would have just been a boring academic. Hey, we academics are not all boring. He, he said in a boring, <laughs> in a boring <laughs> way. Wait, but aren't you... Aren't you now going to be potentially lecturing in North Carolina? Right. Are you not simply reverting well, see, to I mean, your that, true nature? No, no done deal. I mean, I, I'm maneuvering for that. Yeah, <laughs> n- n- nothing written in stone yet. But yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm still, you know, very much tempted. I, I like being in front of a classroom. I, I mean, I yeah. like the idea that I might shape young minds and impart some knowledge. Okay, so tell us about, you know, with both Tang Dynasty and your band Chunqiu. You you played a bunch of gigs in like some really shithole provincial towns. <laughs> I sure did, yeah. <laughs> and I some of my favorite places in the world are shithole provincial towns in China because they're just kind of like a bizarro. Yeah, no, it's universe. so weird. Yeah, I, I I totally miss that. That's actually I really kick myself for not having gotten out. I mean, since I stopped playing actively, I no longer really you know got out into the sticks and went. I mean, we go on you know vacations and stuff family trips to the old provincial homeland or whatever but uh yeah it's none not, of it's probably not it's quite not the same as, as fun, being there right. as like a rock god who's just had a show can you can you tell us a story sure all sorts like some like hellhole provincial town okay so i'm not going to name names um, but there's a, a a particular town in northwestern china uh, that we we went to once in, in Tang Dynasty, and this is a very typical experience. Actually, this happened a lot. I mean, this variations on this theme, but generally there'd be some really dodgy promoter, and you know he'd be usually sort of the owner. What's of the his venue. name? Zui Jivan. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy. So he he would uh he would you know uh promise us the world, and then you know we'd we'd play a show, and it would come time to settle accounts. So he would owe you know. The, the lighting company, he'd owe all these, these people money. And, you know, he'd be buying people rounds. And then he would go to the bathroom and he would vanish. He would go into the bathroom and find the, the window open and he'd, he'd skedaddle. <laughs> no way. With all the cash. Right. It's just not paid, paid us. And, and so immediately, you know, you, we had to think about what we were going to do. So we knew that, okay, so our hotel bill has not been paid. And we've been, you know, we hadn't trashed the place exactly, but you know, we had run up a bar tab out the window, <laughs> right? And and we no, we we had to abscond out the window, right? Often, like like by tying our shit like in bundles and and lowering it through the window no on way. sheets, <laughs> right, tying sheets together. So be, and so, so you could, and then you just sort of walk out like you know without any of your luggage, like you're going out for a smoke, and then you'd get in a car and go to the airport. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. <laughs> Whistling. I think hands in your pockets. That whatever. sounds a lot more spinal and, and, tap than I yes. think you may realize, <laughs> Kaiser. Yeah. Oh, well, well, and then, you know, in and sometimes our tour manager, if he was kind of smart, he would realize that we were about, you know, we were getting ripped off and he would go immediately to 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 the bar back. I mean, to the, you know, to figure out where they kept all their booze and he'd walk off with several cases of Jack Daniels or Chivas or something, you know, like to, to so that we'd at least get paid in kind. And, you know, we, we would, like, leave with several cases of liquor because, you know, we weren't get, weren't going to get cash. Uh, it was pretty funny. I mean, and then, of course, there's all those. The, 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 everyone asks me, what about groupies, right? This is not related to what I was saying earlier about sexual liberation because this was just bizarre. I mean, you do not. So the, the, there was a rule with Tang Dynasty. They, they just never touched any of these girls. And I could see why. Because most of the time, uh, your encounters with like the ardent fans would begin with them 
coming up to you after a show and handing you a thick envelope that would be would have a cover letter usually, which would detail why, how it was that one of your songs prevented them from committing suicide. Wow. Like or in the midst of like I was about to slip my wrist to the bathtub. It was was full full of warm water, and then your song came on and it made me realize there was you know a lot to live for. Oh my goodness. And. Yeah, and, and it was and one woman in particular had a whole bunch of eight by ten like professionally done photos of her in various outfits. And uh, as we were flipping through one of them, we came across they were, they were they were weirder and weirder until she started dressing in like these homemade Nazi outfits with like swastika uh. armbands and, and and it was it was like brown shirt shit. And it, whoa, and so you, you, I could see why they had this rule: you you never got involved with any of these women. <laughs> that's just a trip. I, I won't go on with the rest yeah, of the story. Yeah, that always goes back to real. Same with you, Kaiser. So, I mean, it, I think it's really interesting. I'm still a little bit in denial, as I think David is as well, that you guys are now both American in, you know, or or living in back in the U.S. How does that change? How do you think that will change your perspective and what we do here on uh, on Seneca? Well, I, I don't think it'll change it. You know, fundamentally, I think it's still going to be a show about current affairs in China, and it's still going to draw on on um, the expertise of the guests, the people that we we find. We just sort of have tapped a new vein. Uh, we'll continue to to do shows, you know, with you guys rounding up folks in China. Great. We'll just sort of add to it. We're we're, nice. we're going to have a lot of. I mean, recently we've been taping a lot of shows in New York, but we've got a bunch of shows to tape in Washington D.C. We'll be in San Francisco in the fall. We'll be back in China. We'll be doing shows. You know. I think it's it's hopefully only going to get richer and more diverse. I think we'll do probably more shows that have to do with uh, different facets of U.S.-China relations uh, because we will have access to so many people who are sort of looking at those issues from the American side who aren't based in China. But other than that, I, I Jeremy, what do you think? I mean, is it that's that's pretty much what we've talked about, yeah? I think so. I mean, I think. Um you know, of course, uh, uh, Ada and David, we're very happy to have the two of you on board because it will enable us to have uh, people who are still on the in Beijing, in Beijing yeah. um, so that, you know, e- even if we only get back twice a year, we'll at least have people who are there mostly year round uh, who will correct us if we lose touch. Um, um, <laughs> but I don't think it's really going to anything's really going to change. Um, I mean, I think both of us are pretty plugged in to China, both in a very personal sense because of our families and our friends uh, and also because of the things we're interested in. So I I, I don't think the the sort of focus of the show will change. I I think maybe the biggest difference is that because we're working with sub-China and doing this more professionally, we will have more energy to devote to try to make this thing better than it was uh that professionalism may not be in evidence in this particular show (laughs) (laughs) but let's refer you to to earlier shows in this series since we joined sub china well look professionalism uh can mean a number of different things (laughs) i i I don't think professionalism can exclude being fun or um silly uh, talking shit (laughs) it just means you have more time to devote to something Let's get to recommendations. But before we get to recommendations, I just want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at SubChina News and on Facebook at facebook.com slash SubChina News. So I'm usually the first one to issue recommendations. But since Kaiser is the guest today... Your turn, buddy. <laughs> hey, thank you very much. So yeah, so in the spirit of, of our uh, the the metal conversation we had earlier, I'm going to recommend uh, the cinematic oeuvre of one Sam Dunn and his partner Scott McFadden. These are a couple of Canadian-based documentary filmmakers. Uh, Sam, in particular, is he's a, a metalhead. He's he actually was an active bass player in in a metal band in Toronto, and. Uh, is also an anthropologist, and he, you know, he's he's an academic anthropologist. He has a, a master's degree in anthropology from I think NYU or something. Is really sort of interested in the metal tribe in in metal culture, and produced a terrific documentary. It was in two thousand six. It was called 
uh, Headbangers Journey, uh, and it was just uh, it was a terrific success. He went on to make another one uh, in 2008 called Global Metal, about the sort of global phenomenon of heavy metal. And uh, my band, oh, my old band and my new band were both featured in that documentary. Uh, and it's it's quite good. He, he goes around the world. He you know goes to Latin America. He goes to you know, India, Indonesia, uh, the Middle East, and 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 you know talks about the global phenomenon of, of heavy metal. He did another documentary called Flight Six 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 about Iron Maiden and uh, a tour that he followed them on, uh, where you know like, as as they did when they came to to, to Beijing and Shanghai recently, where. Uh, they, uh, the the lead singer of Iron Maiden, as as, as anyone who who knows the band well uh, knows, is actually a pilot, in, and he he flies his own seven forty seven. It's kind of an amazing thing. But um, then they they did what it was one of my very favorite documentaries of all time. It was it was called uh, Rush Beyond the Lighted Stage, uh, which actually won like the Audience Award at the Tribeca Film Festival. It's a really well loved documentary about a band that was incredibly influential in my own life. So, uh, yeah, his his films are great. He apparently has a new one out called Satan Lives about uh, <laughs> about Satan in popular culture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Satan. <laughs> So Ada, why don't you go next with a okay. recommendation? I've got a couple of um, recommendations here. So starting off with something a little bit more on the serious side. Um, I don't know. Do you guys know Shelley Rigger? I don't know if you guys have had her on the show yet, but she seems really interesting. No, we haven't. Okay, so she just wrote a piece called The End of a Golden Age in China-Taiwan Relations. And it's up on the, China, uh, the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy uh, Facebook page and website. And it's just a comment on Tsai Ing-wen's inaugural address and some really useful analysis, I think, for, you know, kind of how to thread the needle um, between, uh, you know, how Taiwan and how mainland China um, see the, 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 the shifts that were, could be read into um, or not into um, her address. So Tsai Ing-wen is the new president of, of Taiwan, of course. So that's a that was an I thought was a very very um, interesting and useful uh, piece of uh, foreign policy reading there, and um, and then two other uh, quick recommendations. One is is um, you know since we, I mean it's been a few weeks now, but um, obviously Muhammad Ali uh, has passed, and for folks who have not yet seen the documentary When We Were Kings, I. You know, I mean, just what a tremendous, what an outstanding and fascinating figure. And I just think a really um, amazing uh, person to um, to reflect back on his life and his times. And 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 you don't have to be a boxing fan to uh, watch this documentary and and really enjoy it and get a sense of of what he meant um, for uh, for so many people. Um, around the world. And then my last recommendation is uh, to comment on the passing of uh, uh, bluegrass legend Ralph Stanley, and um, who died earlier this week, I think just a few days ago. Um, and just to recommend checking out um, some of his stuff on YouTube. So, Thanks, Ada. David might have a more specific yeah, recommendation there. But I just wanted Save to throw that out Save some for next time, there. you know? Come on, girl. <laughs> David, what do you have for my us? My turn? Okay. Uh, I was at the Bookworm last night. You probably both remember that place. I remember that place. Uh, and uh, for a book launch or a book party or whatever, for, for Alec Ash's new book mm. called Wish Lanterns. And uh, yeah. you you were very missed there. I mean, both mm. of you, but especially Kaiser. And I'm not exaggerating, Kaiser. Everyone I talked to said, you know, <laughs> oh, God, how did, no why offense, did he leave? And this, uh, you know, it was just like uh, every conversation was suffused with Kaiserhood. <laughs> Kaiserness or something. It was Kaiser, oh you know, nostalgia. So it sounds a little unbearable. Yeah. <laughs> said, Can yeah, we shut up? <laughs> no, but you were, you, you are, and were, and and you know, sorely missed. Yeah. And you know, you you have passed. This whole experience has oh, been no. like being present at your own funeral. Oh, but no. but back to the, the Kaiser passed. He didn't die, but he passed. Right, right. He's passed. Right. I passed on into the but Western this, Haven. This book, uh, Alec has done a great job. Put a lot of work into this book, and and. Uh, uh, it's a very interesting and important topic, the, the, but the millennial generation in China, he, he sort of follows the lives of six people who are not not strategically selected to be representative exactly of any particular group, but he just just six people of a very, very diverse group of people, including a, a musician, a sort of a rock musician. Um, and uh, 
it's 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 very uh, moving. Some of it it tells about the problems of this generation, but in in the telling of these stories of these lives, he he touches upon and just has to in passing describe virtually all of the interesting uh, you know media and social events of the last you know decade or two. All the social media scandals, and the, the dating shows, and and the the parental uh, conflicts, uh, the different ideas about money, materialism, the, the difficulty of, of being a young person in this in this uh, you know new environment in this new economy, um, and it's it's very very well written. Um, he put a lot of care into crafting uh, crafting it like a work of fiction, and it's a, a it's nice to read, and it's also just for someone who is wants to just catch up on the recent decade uh, of, all, of all the events in China. This is now the go-to book, I think. It's, got a, it's packed with all sorts of information about um, recent China, post-internet China, I would say, and then the post-90s generation. It's strongly recommended. It's a very good book. I'm going to have to get that on Kindle. Yeah, my, my copy of it, unfortunately, got packed in a box, so I'm going to have to get it on Kindle. And David Ada, you have an assignment, which is to round up young Alec and get him on the show so we can talk to him, because oh, yeah. I love that guy. He's a, he's a great, That's easy. You, great, great you shouldn't, voice. Don't use the word round up in the context of Beijing, Kaiser. Just pick another word. Round up is, you know, round up guest. Don't use that word. A, but yes, I, w- I will call him and invite him onto the show. <laughs> Ask yes. him to tea. <laughs> For tea. <laughs> Yeah, he does need to be asked for tea. I'm sure there are other people who are considering that at the moment, asking Alec Ash for tea. Um, Okay, so I will give the last recommendation, and it's not particularly China-related. It's podcast-related. If you have an iPhone, um, I would recommend the Overcast uh, podcast app, Overcast. It is designed by a guy who was, I think, the kind of chief engineer behind Tumblr.com. And then, you know, because he made his millions after they sold to Yahoo, he now has the leisure to work on passion projects. And one of them is Overcast. It's a fucking fantastic app if you like podcasts. It just is so wonderfully, just works so well. Uh, particularly if you use an iPhone and use Apple's own proprietary podcast app, which is really awful, you will really appreciate it. It's free. It operates on a patronage system. So if you want to give him money, you can, but you can download it for free and have access to the full set of features. And it just works so well. And it's so nice. Is is Seneca on it? Um, oh, uh, we're great. trying to get on the directory. Oh, okay. I don't think we're on yet, but we will be soon. I have no doubt. Um, well, after that fulsome plug, how yeah. could he deny it? Hey, Overcast dude, put us that on your fucking directory plug. already. Um, <laughs> but it, it really is wonderful if you have an iPhone and listen to a lot of podcasts. The great irony will he'll 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 say no because you swear too much. Because I swear too much. Yeah, I know that that's happened to me a lot in my life. You right. Know, just when I thought I'd succeed, somebody says, "Oh, you said the F Language. word." And visa denied. Anyway, Ada and David, it's wonderful to have you back on the show. And you will be back on the show very frequently because we're gonna we figured out the technology to make this work. So it's gonna work. Let us uh quickly thank subchina.com, our new partners. Um check out the app and yeah. the daily What's email. Up, China? Uh news. Thanks, SubChina. Oh, yep. <laughs> and uh um so, Jeremy, I'm going to rescue you from that feeble attempt at an outro. The Seneca podcast is powered by Sup China and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla Cheng and Amadeo Tumamillo and Soraya Darabi from Sup China. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast or Sup China at SupChina News. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.